Good afternoon. Please uh, rise with me as we read from God's Word. This is Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen to twenty-one. Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen to twenty-one. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word. That has been revealed to us and that has also been given to us a lot in this form that we are able to read and understand and, uh, and meditate upon for ourselves a lot. And we pray a lot that we do not take lightly the privilege of uh, having your word in our hands. And as we look at it today a lot, we pray that uh, your spirit will enlighten us and allow us to, uh, in a sense, a lot, to grasp the glorious mysteries of your revelation to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so in our series on systematic theology, we have thus far covered a number of doctrines, uh, including our brother Richard was covering salvation these past few weeks. But over the next two weeks, we will look at the doctrine of the word, or the Bible, which is a key aspect of this whole series, obviously, because all of our theology ultimately comes from the Bible. And when we talk about the doctrine of God's word, what we usually do is cover topics such as um, you know, what is in the Bible? Like, how did the Bible come into the form and contents that we have today? You know, the necessity of Scripture to guide us uh, to know God and to, and to be saved. The sufficiency of Scripture to guide us in all aspects of our lives. And the clarity of Scripture, which makes it accessible and understandable to every person who seeks, who seeks to, um, to dwell and meditate upon it irrespective of their language or their age or learning. But today we're going to focus on the topic of the authority of the Word of God. The authority of the Word of God. Now what do we mean by authority? So if you open up your dictionaries, or as most of us do today, if you Google, um, you know, what you should do in Google is define authority. Um, what it will give you back is it's one of two meanings, or both. The power or right to make decisions to give orders and enforce obedience. So that's one meaning of authority. The other meaning of authority is a person or organization having power or control in a particular, uh, typically political or administrative sphere. So that is like when we say the, the legal authorities, we are talking about the judges. We are, when we talk about the political authorities, we are talking about like the prime minister and the legislators and so on. So there are two meanings of authority. One is the power or the right to give orders and to be obeyed. And the second one is a person who has 
authority or power in a particular area. And um, all of us living in this current cultural climate know that you know, authority is not the most popular word these days, right? It's like a dirty word. People have a problem with authority, and in particular with what we see as authority figures, like the government, or, or the central bank, or the CRA, you know, and, and especially religious institutions like the church. And, and this culture seems to view pretty much all authority as bad. You know, and, and an example of that you can find when we look at books and movies um, you know, that we see today. For example, like 50, 60 years ago, you know, if you were to read something like The Lord of the Rings, you know, all those kinds of books always had a bad authority, but there was also a good authority. Right? So there were always competing authorities. So there was someone who was a villain, as we call it, but then there was also someone who was good and in a position of authority. So the, the whole point of the story was for the, the, the characters to escape from the bad authority and search for and find the good authority. But then you look at books and movies today, you know, something like, I don't know, like The Hunger Games. In, in, in books like that, there's no good authority at all. The only authority which is ultimately able to liberate you or free you is yourself. So our culture has a real problem with authority. And when you examine that, you notice that their problem is not with authority per se, but who has authority and also what that means for them. So accountability. So our culture's problem is with who has authority and the accountability that comes from that. You know, the, there's a rapper called uh, uh, Tupac Shakur, which uh, many people wouldn't know. And Tupac said that, um, I am a natural-born leader. You see a natural-born leader uh, a lot if you're in human resources. There are a lot of natural-born leaders on resumes. So he says, um, I'm a natural-born leader. I know how to bow down to authority if it is authority that I respect. So what he's saying is that it's not that I have a problem with authority, but I have to respect that authority before I bow down to him. So then you come to something like Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. So if you read Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, then, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. What is Paul saying? He's saying God is the source of all authority in this world. And he's not only the source, but he is the ultimate authority over everyone. So he has to be obeyed in every sphere of life, whether you like it or not. So he is both someone who has the power to make decisions and command obedience, but he's also someone whose authority extends over the whole universe, the entire sphere of the universe. And it is in the context of God's sovereign authority that we talk about the authority of the scriptures, which is the word of God written down. You see, the the innate authority of the Bible comes from the fact that God is its author, or God is its source. And when you ask, what do you mean by scriptural authority? This is a textbook definition. Like, it literally is a textbook definition because I got it from a textbook. (laughs) 
the, the authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. I'll read that again. The authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So very briefly today I aim to cover two aspects of the authority of the Bible. First, how do we know that the Bible indeed is God's word? If we say that all authority belongs to God, then the Bible has to be God's word for it to have authority. And secondly, then how does the authority of the word function in our own lives? So let's look at that one by one. So how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Well, first off, this is what the Bible claims for itself. See, the Bible begins with what? A record of God speaking in Genesis. And throughout the Old Testament, we see passages that begin like, Thus says the Lord. Or passages that talk of God speaking through the prophets. You know, in the Old Testament, when a prophet spoke from God, every word he spoke had to be had to come from God and had to happen, had to be proven true, else he would be considered a false prophet and be punishable by death. So that's the, that's the overall testimony of the Old Testament. And when you come to the New Testament, you see multiple references to the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament, as being God's words written down. And we don't have time to go through all of them. There are about 51 but let's focus on a couple of the key ones. The first one is a very familiar verse. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, all scripture, when Paul is talking about scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. Because at that time, the New Testament was being written, but what they had in their hands was the Old Testament. So he says, all scriptures breathed out by God. And what's interesting is the word scripture there is the Greek word graphe. Okay? And you have to keep that in mind. And Paul says that God breathed out the words of the Old Testament. He breathed it out, meaning that they are the words of God written down. And a similar idea is in the same passage we read at the beginning. That's in Second Peter. And, and in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter says that men did not write down the scriptures of their own accord. What do you think is the word for scripture used here? I just... Uh, so, so Peter says, men did not write down the scriptures of their own accord, but in line with the very thoughts of God, as they were moved and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you see, both Paul and Peter do not imply that, you know, somehow God took over people. You know, they were like in a trance, and God communicated, and they were just like robots typing things down. He's saying, no, God inspired these men through the Holy Spirit to write scripture in their own personalities and context in such a way that every word that is written down is indeed God's words. 
So that's the testimony of the New Testament about the Old Testament. But then you might ask, what about the New Testament? And then we have to remember that we do not have uh, a newer testament. Right? We, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. So the New Testament can look back in retrospect on the Old Testament and say, this is why it's scripture. But we don't have a testament after the New Testament because the New Testament was being written down when these passages were, uh, were, first, uh, were first spoken or written. But, remember that word graphe? It's used 51 times in the New Testament to refer to the Old Testament. 51 times. But two times, it refers to something else, okay? And that is the New Testament writings, which they already had. So in the same epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And here's the key point. As they do the other scriptures. So you see, it's the same word. But here Peter is saying that what Paul has written and sent to the churches, whatever epistles uh, they had at that time, are also scripture. So that's one reference of Graphe referring to the New Testament. The second one is in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now where do you think this verse comes from? This works actually comes from Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. This is something Jesus said. And so what Paul is saying is that the the words of Jesus as recorded in the book of Luke chapter 10 is also scripture. Same word as the Old Testament scriptures. So you can see even as the New Testament was being written, they knew that what was being written down in the New Testament Scripture. So in conclusion, we see that the testimony of the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are the words of God written down. Now there's one very important point we have to remember. If these are indeed the words of God, then the Bible has to be true and free from error for all time. You know, in Numbers, we know this verse, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We also read in Proverbs, every word of God proves true. You know, and Jesus says in Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will remain, or my words will not pass away. See, if these are God's words, they have to be true. They have to be without error, And they have to be effective and relevant for all eternity. You know, with regards to history, especially, there are many people today, many Christians involved, in fact, who will say that many parts of the Bible are myths. That many parts of the Bible are actually not historical, 
They're basically someone you know, creating up stories or taking a very normal story and giving it these elements of fantasy just to prove a point. And they said, that's fine, because what we need to understand is just the message and not whether, and not whether that passage is historical or not. So there are people who would say that you know, the creation account is a myth. The virgin birth is a myth. The resurrection is a myth. And they said that's okay because the point is that you should have faith. So even if these things are not true, you should only hold true to the point being made. But see what Peter says uh, in the passage we read, 2 Peter 1 and verse 16 to 17. What does he say? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. See, what is he saying? He's saying you should not have time for people making up stories. But what I'm telling you is something that happened. And how do you know this happened? Because I was there. John was there. You go ask them. You go ask all the other people who are still living whether this is a myth or not. We do not follow clever myths. You know, the Bible's historical claims are rooted in eyewitness accounts. And when you say these are eyewitness accounts, that is an invitation for you to test and verify and prove it wrong. It is not hiding behind the fact or, or the, the illusion that these are just stories that you should just read and take some meaning out of it. Now, it's very upfront about the fact that these are not myths. In fact, the word myth never has a positive connotation in the Bible. So if you go to Titus, he's, Paul says, in the last days, there will be false teachers and false prophets, and people's ears will be itching to hear myths. He's saying, this is not that. This is the truth. And, and you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If these things did not happen, as it is written, it is futile and it's useless to be of any benefit to us. So the Bible is true, and it's free from error, and it is relevant for all eternity. So that is the first one. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Because that's what the Bible claims for itself. Now, here's the interesting thing. Do not use that argument. I mean, you can. You're free to. Use that argument with a non-believer. Because what they will say is that, well, that's a circular logic. Right? Do you know what a circular logic is? Circular logic is when I said... How do you know that the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible said so. Okay. What is the God's word? The Bible. How do you know that the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible said so. So that's, that's circular logic. Okay. And there's truth in that. See, there's truth in that, that you cannot escape, but you also have to understand that is unavoidable. See, all claims to authority are circular. Okay. If you go to a rationalist, why do you think... Reason is the way we should evaluate all claims because that is the only rational thing to do. Okay. See, that's circular logic. If you go to someone who's a scientist, why do you think all truth claims should be, um, should be tested by science? 
because that is the process of science. Uh, you go to the same thing you can do with experience and with logic. All claims to authority are circular and all appeals to a higher authority are also circular. Let's say you took a case to uh, the district court of, uh, is there a district court in Toronto? I'm sure there is. So the, the, the district court of Milton, let's put it that way. And, and, they, and they came back with an unfavorable judgment. Then you go to the, 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 the court uh, in Toronto, which represents Ontario, the provincial court. And they came back with an unfavorable judgment. Then what do you do? You go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court comes back to you with an unfavorable judgment. Then where do you go? See, all appeals to a higher authority are also eventually circular because you cannot go beyond a higher authority. And God is the highest authority. So if you ask God, prove that the Bible has authority, God says, it's on my word, then what do you say? No, somebody else proved. Who else is going to, who else is going to attest to that? See, we try too hard sometimes to seek the verification of the Bible's truthfulness from non-believers. But ultimately, that is futile. Okay? I'm not saying there isn't a place for apologetics. But I'm saying if our intention is to convince someone that the Bible is true, it is almost always futile. Because that's what even the scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, the spiritual discernment is key. In faith, we uphold the Bible's claims to be, words, uh, to be the word of God. And we are reassured by all of the historical evidence and the scientific evidence that in spite of all their attempts to the contrary, they continue to uphold the Bible's claims to, to, to historic and scientific uh, truthfulness. But ultimately, it is in our ongoing Christian life, our ongoing Christian experience, that we truly realize that the Bible is indeed God's word. That its promises are God's promises, which are effective in the lives of those who seek him. That when we go through its pages, we are not merely reading a book, but indeed we are hearing his voice. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There is no greater evidence that the Bible is God's word apart from examining the validity of its words in our lives as the people of God redeemed by him through the work of Jesus Christ. And when we examine our life, there's no doubt that our testimonies will ever say otherwise. What they will say is that this is a book unlike any other book, a book in which its words are indeed God speaking to our own hearts. So how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Because that's a claim of the Bible, but that's also validated in our experience as Christians. Secondly, how does the authority of the word function in our lives? Now we know that the Bible has authority. How does that function in our lives? It is um, impossible in, in a short period of time to, to comprehensively cover you know, all of the aspects of the Bible's authority. But let's look at three of the most important aspects of the Bible's authority in our lives. Okay? The first one is that the Bible has spiritual authority. It has 
spiritual authority. See, in a time where all you read about in uh, Christian media, Christian news, even general news, is people battling over morality and ethics. And when Christians mostly use their Bibles to analyze politics and current events, we should not forget that the Bible's ultimate purpose is to save sinners by shining forth the majesty of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. That is its ultimate purpose. Its claim to authority is ultimately spiritual authority. It says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And he mentions a couple of verses prior, uh, verse 14, he says, how will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? See, the Bible has not been handed down to us just to analyze and, and use as, you know, like a loudspeaker to sit in judgment on others. It is meant to be preached so that the word of Christ can go into the hearts of the lost, so that through the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit, they can be saved. That is the spiritual authority of the Bible. That is the only means by which people can be saved. And the spiritual authority of the Bible also extends to the spiritual practices of Christians. You know, in individual and corporate settings, the Bible teaches us how to pray, how to meditate, how to properly divide the scriptures. And, and in our churches, the Bible has some clear things to say about the church and its practices and its ordinances. You know, it doesn't have a lot of things to say, right? The Bible doesn't say that we should not wear uh, leather suede shoes, for example, which is good for me, I guess. But it does, it does have some things to say. And, and in the things that it says, especially about the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, it is intended to be adhered without exception. That is part of its spiritual authority. And the spiritual authority cannot be superseded by an adherence to human tradition or by someone saying, this is no longer relevant in this day and age. Its spiritual authority is not superseded by the, the whims of our current age or by a blind adherence to human tradition. See, the Bible's claims to spiritual authority are not um, very acceptable to many people who would argue for beliefs like universal salvation or that there are many ways to God. And in, in many cases, it's also an irritant for many Christians you know, who would like a little bit more flexibility in their beliefs and practices. But we read that the word of God is as sure as the heavens. So we have to proclaim the spiritual authority of the Bible in all of our settings, be that in, in the personal family setting or in our corporate setting. But what else can we do? Well, for one, perhaps we can as a community demand of our preachers and teachers that they focus on preaching and teaching from the word, from the Bible, and not merely comment on the latest news and politics. See, if you want news and politics, you can go to CNN. I'm not saying some level of contextual awareness is not needed. It is needed in every community, but it should not be at the cost of the solid exposition of the word of God, which has the power to save people's lives. As a community, we need to demand that of all of our preachers and all of our teachers. And if you are free to go to any preacher or teacher who is not 
expositing from the Word of God because you want to uphold the spiritual authority of the Word. So that's the spiritual authority of the Word of God. The second authority that the Bible has is a moral authority. It has a moral authority. Simply put, the Bible tells us what is right and wrong when it comes to morality and ethics. The Bible is the channel of God's authority over the behavior and conduct of his creation. And in that channel, in that sphere, it is not restricted to the realm of believers, but over all mankind. So God does not say, for example, that homosexuality is a sin just for believers. He says it's a sin, period. So its coverage is not restricted to the realm of the church, but it's over all mankind. And the Bible has a lot to say about moral and ethical behavior, about what is considered sin and outrageous rebellion in the sights of God. And our behavior, our own conduct, must be aligned with the expectations of Scripture. You know, in Psalm 119, verse 9, this is what it reads. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to the word. Our behavior first must be aligned with the expectations of Scripture. And as Christians, we have to be committed to the opinion and judgments of the Bible with regards to the practices and customs of the world in which we live. Increasingly, that is unpopular. It's even illegal and dangerous in a world that is committed to mandating and, and, and legally legislating the moral acceptance of behavior that we clearly see as sinful in the Bible. And, and the current assault on the Bible and on the church is not an assault over spiritual authority but it's an assault over its moral authority. The authority which is seen to interfere with the modern ideas of liberty and sexual freedom. But even in this climate, we are called to remain steadfast in our adherence to the moral and ethical behavior and norms set forth in the word of God. But that being said, as Christians, we have a problem. Too often, too often we focus too much on the negative, don't-do aspects of biblical morality and pay little to no attention to the positive moral commandments of the Bible. Things like love your neighbor, to uplift the status of the downtrodden and discarded, to give voice to the voiceless. See, many a times our appeal to the moral authority of the scripture is with the intention to control and constrict behavior and to sit in judgment with no aim to transform or rehabilitate those same behaviors. Both sides are necessary if we insist on the negative side of biblical morality, which is the do not do this. We have to be seen as above reproach in upholding the positive side in the things that we have to do. Else the world is justified in calling us hypocrites. If we uphold the moral authority of the Bible, do not just stop at the don't do's. Also, be vigilant in upholding the things that we have to do, that we are called to do. That is the moral authority of the Bible. So there's a spiritual authority, there's the moral authority, and finally there's something called the functional authority of the Bible. All right? So what do, what do we mean by functional authority? It's a term that 
that's very common in business. In, in business settings or in organizations, there are different types of authority. There's line authority, there's staff authority. Now, you don't even know about this. Okay, line authority is, uh, is a line worker having the authority to do his job, right? Staff authority is, is someone's authority to go and advise a manager that, hey, you might be the manager, but this is not your area of expertise. You should not do this. So, but what is functional authority? Functional authority is the authority you need to get your job done. That is functional authority. It's the authority you need to get your job done. It is how you think's done. So what do we mean when the Bible has functional authority in our lives? When we allow the word to influence every aspect of our life and every decision-making process in our daily life, it has functional authority over us. When we allow the word to influence every aspect of our lives, every decision that we take in our life, it has functional authority over us. You know, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, this is what Jesus says in, in, in response to his temptation. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, it's not saying man shall not have an opinion. It's not saying man shall be saved. It's saying man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You notice the context. Now, here's one thing that we are not very good at doing. Noticing the context in which certain verses are stated. We know the verse from Second Peter which we read. That's a very popular verse. We know the verse from Second Timothy which we read. That's also a very popular verse. But what is the context in which both of these verses are given to us? In Second Peter, he's writing to a community that is fearful and, and, and that is having doubts about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to them, this is a sure thing, so therefore... Remain holy, remain committed to the call of Christ. And in that context, he's saying, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. That the prophetic word is sure. What's the context in 2 Timothy? It is, it is an invitation to doing ministry properly. That he's saying Timothy so that the young man, that the man of God can be prepared for every good work. Right? All scripture is God-breathed. Why? So that the man of God can be prepared for every good work. We stop at the belief without looking at why it was stated. See, that is functional authority. It's saying the authority of the scripture is meant to influence our character, our patterns of behavior, and our way of life. Now, how is such a way of life possible? There's only one way. By being intimate with the word. By being knowledgeable of the word by being submissive to the word. You know, when our hopes and dreams and desires are, are, are secondary, are subjugated to the word, so that in all things, the glory of the author of the word shines through. That's how you give the Bible functional authority, by being intimate with it, by being knowledgeable of it. You know what's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. What is Psalm 119? It's, it's like a love song to the Bible. That's weird. It's like the longest portion of a book is the, is the preface. Right? But why do you think the psalmist took 176 verses to describe the scriptures? Because he's expressing his amazement that God would see it fit to reveal himself, not just in a moment in time, but in a manner that is approachable and available for all time. And he searches the word and he finds that it is true. 
that it is righteous, and that it contains the only sure way to happiness, to wisdom, to honor, and to everything that is good in this life. And that emotion leads to his love for the word because he loves the God who wrote the word. And he, and, and he delights in it. You know, in Psalm 119, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. He delights in the word of God. Do we delight in the word? Do we delight in learning and reading and studying and meditating? Or are we content to say, oh, that is just for the intellectuals. That is just for people who went to Bible school. I'm happy to read my, my, my Psalms and my Proverbs and my favorite passages. It says he delights in the word of God, that he pours over the words and meditates upon them. And then he says he desires it. He desires it. He says in, um, in verse 27 of 119, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous words. He not only delights in it, but he desires it. He feels an emptiness when he's without it. And I was reading an anecdote um, from, uh, from a, um, an author called Kevin DeYoung about how he's a Presbyterian, and he went to a conference of his denomination, and there were like, you know, they were forming vision, and I know, and 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 there was a conference to to outline a future vision, and and one of the things that was said is that, um, you know, now cl- you know, close your Bibles, and just meditate for some time. You know, we also fall into this habit that, or oh, to meditate means you close your Bible, and then then I don't know what what you do, but you know, you 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 go to that happy space, and and you clear all your thoughts. And you're, and you're expecting something to come into your head. But you see, what is, what is David saying? He says, I will meditate on the word, not apart from it. Too often we meditate apart from the word. But there's no revelation that's going to come to you other than through the word. He desires it. He delights in it. And lastly, he depends on it. In, in verse 31 of 119, he says, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. He's saying, I know that every good, true, and honorable thing is in this word, and I'm going to cling to it. And when I cling to it, it is in faith that I ask you, let me not be put to shame. He depends on it. Do we understand that everything we need to live a holy and acceptable life unto God is contained within the pages of Holy Scripture. See, the aim of reading and learning and studying the Bible is not, as, as, uh, as a theologian said, it's not to become a master of the Word, but it is to be mastered by the Word. Your aim is not to become a master of the Word, but it is to be mastered by the Word. And there are two ways in which you can not give functional authority to the Bible. Two ways. One is by being ignorant of it. By being ignorant. Like, you, like we don't know what is in the Bible. And that's like, you know, we have punched our ticket to heaven. We have got our moral do's and don'ts, but that's it. Like everything else is like a blank slate. It's like, that is actually functional atheism. Functional atheism is living like God does not exist. By being ignorant of the Bible, 
we do not give functional authority to the word of God. The second way in which we cannot give it functional authority is, is only by giving it situational authority. You know what is situational authority? It's like treating it as a service manual, right? You know what's the difference between knowing how to drive? I mean, it's funny that I should say this. Um, <laughs> the difference between knowing how to drive and knowing your Honda Civic. What's the difference? You know how to drive. You don't stop at a red light and then open the Ontario handbook and say, what do I do at a red light? But when your Honda Civic starts making weird sounds, you either take out the manual or you take it to the shop. There's a difference. One of them is situational. The other one is practical. It carries with you throughout. And too often Christians are just content to give situational authority to the Bible. Whom should I marry? Open the word of God. Should I go here or should I take this job? Open the word of God. That is, that is not functional authority. You're treating it as a service manual. What is the pattern of our engagement with the word? Do we see it as a chore? Do we, see, do we just stick to the tried and tested you know, in the Bible, like there are pages in our Bibles that are rippled and, 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 and uh, yellowed out, but everything else is clean. What is the testimony we leave behind in our family prayers and our lifestyles to our children? You see, the whole center of faithful Christian living is the functional authority of the Word of God. That is the center. If the center does not hold, everything else falls down with it. If there is no functional authority of the word of God in our life, when you, go to, when you come to a situation in which its moral authority is questioned, and you are in a situation where you are no longer constrained by your inhibitions or by the don'ts that your parents told you, you will not succeed. The moral authority will fall down. And eventually, even the spiritual authority will fall down. That's what we see happening today. You know, people who are walking away from the faith are not walking away just because they had doubts or because they found something that's irreconcilable with their beliefs. It's because they have never lived in the functional authority of the Word of God. The center has to hold, else everything else will collapse with it. The true, the sure, written-down Word of God is given to us you know, it's not given to us to control our behavior. It's not just to control our behavior, but to transform our behavior. It's not given to us just to restrict us, but to liberate us from the bondage of sin. It's not given to us just to inhibit us, but, but to give us true freedom in which we can approach God and be free to give him the praise and glory and authority that he deserves. What is our pattern of authority with regards to the scripture. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word, for the many ways in which you have made it available to us, Allah, that we are never lacking um, for, for resources or for time to read it. We see every week, Allah, a new community with so much joy when they receive the word in their own language. And yet, we are blessed with an abundance of resources. And, and many times, Allah, even in that we are ashamed to say that we do not take the time to pour over it, to delight in it, to desire it, 
and depend upon it a lot. And maybe you have the, the courage a lot and the willingness and the spiritual ability a lot to live uh, under its mastery, giving it the authority that it deserves in every aspect of our life a lot, so that we can give you, that we can show that you are the one who has authority in our lives. And may that be our testimony and witness to each one of us here and also to the world that is watching. Thank you, Lord, once again for the community and for all the good things you are doing in our midst. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.